and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. This episode, we'll be answering the bloody stupid question, how can creatures great and small boost employability through apprenticeships? To answer that question, hello, I'm Mike, I'm a learning designer at the Open University, imposter syndrome incarnate, and a man with a big cup of tea. And I am joined by... So I'm Olivia, I'm an editor at the Open University. Um, I'm Chris Cox, learning design consultant, and I like illustration. Uh, I'm Mark Childs, and I have just uh, come into possession of a Rodecaster 2 Pro. (laughs) (laughs) And I might be annoying you with little sound effects throughout the program. No, I won't, no, I won't, no, I won't. (laughs) Please do. So, how can creatures great and small boost employability through apprenticeships? We've got two things we're going to talk about in this. All creatures great and small and apprenticeships. Let's break them apart in the first part of our show. Part one, the question. Okay, so uh, all creatures, great and small. Olivia is positively bursting with excitement. (laughs) Olivia, go for it. It's a really lovely show. I don't know if any of you watched it, whether I I managed to sell the idea of it to you. Um, But it was just on, just during the first lockdown, and it was just the most glorious kind of escapism. And... um, got really hooked on it. Although I say that, I'm not so keen on this latest new series that's just started. Um, <laughs> it's all gone a bit dark and I don't really want darkness, to be honest. And also I injured myself just when I was about to watch the last episode. So um slightly gone off the whole thing, but um, let's go with it for now. So it's a program about the James Herriot books, which seem to be ubiquitous. When I lived in New Zealand, they were in every like Airbnb and hostel I stayed in. I don't know why. They must just make British people feel at home. Cozy. Um, so it's it's the the premise is that this is vet practice in the 1930s and they drive around the beautiful Yorkshire Dales taking care of cows and sheep and horses and, and dogs. And um, alongside that, they have kind of amusing adventures. But the thing that's lovely about this series is I think it's the, the characters are rather engaging and endearing and have kind of... Um, relatable character flaws, shall we say, that um, are rather comforting in these strange times that we live in. The, the one I'm familiar with is the, the old one with uh, with Christopher Timothy and Peter Davison and things. Yes. And, and that was that was 50s, I think. It was really sort of set in the 50s. And, and I remember it's all outdoor. It was the, I mean, those are the things that appeal, are the, the outdoorsness of it, the Yorkshire Dales and I mean, that's the only reason Last of the Summer Wine went for 27 years or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like even the storyline's boring. You can look at the, you know, look, look at the, the scenery. But, and it was always like, you know, animals and the tricky woo, the dog and all this sort of stuff. And, and um, Siegfried Farnham with his arm up a cow's bottom and stuff. See, this series is much, it's much deeper. They've kind of added all sorts of extra, like long plot lines and it's really oh, quite sophisticated. Oh, um, Okay. So, yeah, it kind of um, really draws you in. So should I not have been watching the 1978 All Creatures Great and Small? Whoops. Okay. Channel 5 version. Olivia was very clear that she was talking about the remake. I'm going to get round. I'm going to have chance. And then you even went out, made this special effort, and then watched the wrong one. (laughs) 
that's very funny. Oh, to be fair, I did watch both. Oh, you have but, watched. But both. I thought, but I thought I watched the new one by accident. I was like, oh no, 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 no. It's the new one, Olivia. And also, the other thing that um, I suppose is relevant is it's semi-autobiographical. Yes. Yeah, because mm-hmm. James Herriot based it on his um, his own experience. I think it's based um, on his own. Yeah, yeah. As, as, as a vet, his um his his book um it shouldn't happen to a vet. I think it was his, his second book. I think he made um, but it's just wonderful. It's so beautiful and genuine and calm. I, I used to read it obsessively as a kid. I loved it so much. Yeah, it's such a wonderful, wonderful book. Chris, you all creatures great and small. I don't remember the I don't remember the old one. Only the it's the sort of thing mom and dad used to watch. And I did oh on a Sunday evening. <laughs> and it had a cool scene tune, and it was about yes. people with hands up rear ends. Um, yeah. But the new one is is really nice. I really enjoy it. And it is so far been gentle and relaxing, but there's looms of war. That's why I've got It's that so thing. gentle. I think that's one of the things I love about it, actually. Yeah. It's very kind of, um, yeah, that's exactly the right word. It's sort of soft comfort telly, isn't it? It is. It is. But then not everything has to be all tense all the time. Um, exactly. So it's very welcome. Um, and I think that's been particularly welcome during those sort of lockdowns. <laughs> oh, I mean, gorgeous. You know, there was a whole set of TV shows that I've been meaning to watch <laughs> over the last few years. And I never get around to them. I just watch the old fami- ones that I'm familiar with and I know what's going to happen next. And yep. I know this is mm. gentle or even if it's not gentle, I know where, I know there's not going to be shocks because I'm so familiar and with then, it. Anyway. I mean, I, I I got really invested earlier in watching, I think for a good five minutes, because this is how shows were paced in the 1970s, but I watched for a good five minutes, your man Harriet scraping just bits of gunk out of uh, out of a horse's hoof. Just while while a farmer sits on, he's like, that mare is leaning on you more than she is on that leg. And he's like, yes. yes. And that's the dialogue for five minutes. I was like, this would be really nice just to have on in the background on a Sunday afternoon in the rain. I can't remember what channel the uh, the original one was on. Was it BBC? One, yeah. I think it was because my parents used to watch it and they didn't approve of things that went on the BBC. <laughs> so it must have been. Um, so I don't know why I'm saying this because there were no ads. So you could just, you know, have oh, yeah. silent scenes. Um, so that's all creatures great and small. Apprenticeships. So apprenticeships are, I think, my, my interpretation of apprenticeships these days has sort of shifted a bit from when I was a younger man. Sort of traditionally, they were paid often very junior uh, roles in a profession that offered kind of on-the-job training. Nowadays, it's a bit more, well, often a bit more organised. Um, yeah, does somebody want to sort of pitch in on what a modern apprentice or what, what an apprenticeship is, and what kind of what the modern context of an apprenticeship is? Shall I shall I kick in with the pedagogical model first and the and background, and then that'll give. There's a pedagogical model for apprenticeships. Yes, um, the apprent the cognitivist apprenticeship model. Oh, God, this is... might completely undermine my, my, my premise. Ah! Oh, okay. <laughs> Carry on. Oh, <no>. The answer <laughs> can be no to the question. <laughs> the, 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 the sort of the, the, the apprenticeship model is actually really the original model, which is that it's, you know, a mentor and a student and somebody works alongside <laughs> a, a sort of somebody who is the master at a particular craft. Or, you know, you look at the Greek philosophers and you would have apprenticeships there where you would have Plato and Socrates and the one would follow the other around. And so you've constantly got this sort of dialogue between master and apprentice. You've constantly got the idea of um, building on what that person knows, which is why it's a cognitivist sort of approach. 
And also you've got that sort of, the, so the, the mentor guides the individual student the, the step by step through each stage of their learning and then assesses them, shares with them, um, tests them. Do you have this? Uh, and then the, men, the apprenticeship can ask the master whether or not this works or that works. So ultimately, I, it's possible to argue that every other pedagogy that we have, every other institutional model we have, is the second best way. It's trying to do on the cheap um, the apprenticeship model because the apprenticeship model is it's hugely labor intensive because you've just got one teacher for one student. In fact, that, I mean that's where the word pedagogue comes from. It's that what you know the the slave of the child. So you would appoint the the Romans would appoint a Greek <laughs> gog slave for the child, the the ped, and. Um, and then the pedagogue would be the master teaching the young, the young apprentice all of the things that they know bit by bit, and and yeah, everything else really kind of falls short of that. And then you have that final stage, which is where the apprentice creates their master piece, and that piece is something that shows that they've acquired all of the things that are developed through the apprenticeship. And then when they've created this master piece, so a carpenter apprentice would create a, a wardrobe or something with all of the cornices in and all of the different joints and things. And you go, here's my masterpiece. And they go, right, you know everything now. Now you're the master. And that's the way it worked. And so this kind of what we – and so the modern version of that pretty much, you know, trying to massify it a bit and get a few more, few more apprentices through with fewer masters really. But ultimately it is it's about learning on the job, creating things, and then at that final stage – showing that you've demonstrated all the skills that are required to complete the apprenticeship. There you go, in a nutshell, I think. Why didn't we do apprenticeships years ago? This feels like the proto-pedagogy from which <laughs> all of us were pro- formed. It is the proto-pedagogy, but I think, well, it's, why, why, why start with why start at the beginning? You know, that's, that's not a point. <laughs> so, yeah. But I think also apprenticeship now is, and this is where I think Chris can come in with a bit more of the is it's there's an actual funding model there's something that universities are trying to uh, kind of get into because of the way that the government matches funding and brings in people with a more practice-based thing and that's why i think there's suddenly big news again because um that's why we ended up doing the ou because there was a mechanism to actually draw down more funding through trying to get more people into you know more vocational things really which is where apprenticeships kind of focus is that does that is that a bit of a springboard to for what you were going to thinking about chris does that help you get into it's what certainly more we time to think definitely <laughs> um, <laughs> more filler and, childs <laughs> as you were explaining it it's it is interesting that it was a very one-on-one jedi master padawan mm. thing it's all based in craft as well yeah. it's sort of like you become a sculptor by learning how someone that takes the shortcuts and the intrinsic knowledge so i think that's really hard to replicate over a huge course so i mean the experience so far that i've had is with helping one of the first policing team like policing apprenticeships I mean, helping them think through how their designs there was always someone as a tutor who um, the apprentices who would be working at the same time would be reflecting to and be keeping personal accounts to. 
But that one-on-one can be quite diluted. I think that's very time poor, whereas apprenticeships originally are very time intensive. Um, so that's where there's some a huge difference between then and now. Um, you have, so in this case, busy police apprenticeship apprentices, they're all the job and they have to qualify. So they're doing a stressful job and then they have to study and reflect on what they've been doing during a stressful day while trying to learn things, which is quite a year for them, I'd imagine. Um, so a lot of the focus that, you know, I, well, we put into it was trying to make things as simple as possible for them and um, as condensed when it's considered. So don't do three things, do one and just build everything into that activity. Um, I want to know if that helps. Yeah. My understanding was, well, I, the reason this came up in my mind was because I briefly worked on um, some training content for apprentice ch- tutors. But my understanding was that there is kind of more talking involved in when you're an apprentice as opposed to just being a normal employee. So they have a tutor and so they have a tutor in the workplace and they have another tutor. So there's a, but there's a lot of dialogue going on between those people and a lot of reflection, as you say. And they also get like a, what's it called, day release to go and study um, one day a week. Um, so I guess that's where the kind of intensity fits in. So they've got to cram the rest of their work into into four days. And they do that can't that time carved out to to look at the theory. And I think that's that's the problematic thing with apprentices apprenticeships at um HE level is that we like to theorize and often, you know, if you're a carpenter learning to carpent, then you know, um, there's no theory behind that really. Whereas actually if you're justifying going and doing this at a university, then it needs to have that theoretical element. And yes, there's the time issues because, and this is, you know, sometimes you might, it might be a year long apprenticeship, but you might take two or three years because you just have to drop out of the course at that particular time because, you know, there's a riot going on if it's your policeman and you have to spend, I don't know, all of your time quelling the riot rather. So I thought than... we were still on carpenters. <laughs> like, oh, there's, there's a riot going on. I need to go make some pitchfork handles. <laughs> yeah, 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 you have to make lots of, yeah. And, Oh, torches and things. Yeah, you've got to have lots of torches because, you know, we've got a castle to burn down or whatever. Um, so um, that's, part of the, that's part of the problem. But also that the way we construct courses is that the theory builds on previous theories bit by bit. Um, and life doesn't work like that. So if you're saying, well, let's look at the theory of, I don't know, kettling. <laughs> I'm going back to police. And you aren't actually doing any kettling this particular month because it, there's no riots going on, then you can't really link the <laughs> theory to the practice um, because it's not happening at the right time. And this is the is genius pushing it. A very, very clever okay, thing that Chris did when I was sitting in on one of his apprenticeship kind of course, learning design things, was he was saying, well, let's disengage the reflection from the Ooh. theory and let's have uh, a year-long or a, a long, thin model module on reflection, and let's actually have the cohort all sharing this, this uh, joining this thing at the beginning and the thing at the end at the same time. But the theory that they're studying then just matches whatever it is that they're 
that they um, they're doing practically within their within their lives, and so therefore we can have apprenticeship model, which is reflection, which we can coordinate and we can do all as a thing single thing. But then let's also have the theory and practice as a separate thing, and then just have everybody bring everybody together and reflect on what they're going through at that particular time, rather than reflect on the content of the course at that particular time because they're all doing different things because their lives are evolving differently, and so their practice is differently. And that's that's why I thought, oh, apprenticeships, Chris, because I saw that. And every time somebody's asked me about apprenticeships since, that's the model that I've used because that's what he did in that particular learning design workshop. Do you remember that? Um, blank. I can see him on the screen, and he doesn't remember this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Chris, I would absolutely take credit for that. It sounds very smart. Maybe um, it came to me in a dream. I don't know, but I don't know dream about Chris. That would be the worrying thing there. <laughs> I find it worrying for people who don't dream about Chris. Yes. <laughs> Just comes to me in the night in a robe, oh, delivers man. pearls of pedagogic wisdom, and then out the window, gone. Uh, oh, my word. Um, <laughs> no, but I did suggest that. Yeah, then that's right, because they might be doing a particular avenue of policing well, that might just be, it was all broken up into different forces as well. So one force could be majoring on one issue because they're a countryside force, while one could be like the Met and they need to do far more inner city things. So it all depends where the students were on their particular journey. So that meant planning a whole journey over three years was pretty tricky. So they sort of had to make things modular. So, okay, you're working in this area of policing, therefore study this module and then reflect on it. There's still fixed assessment points, but it becomes, yes, what your reflections are on that particular subject you've just been learning, not necessarily what is this, answer this question. Just picking up on all of this. So it's almost like there's two different things. There's apprenticeships and there's apprenticeships. There's like the classic apprenticeship model, which is very much the intent of the mentor-mentee by this, by the end of this, my boy, you'll be the best um, bed knob polisher that ever there was. <laughs> like you know, um, six, six years, man and boy, and then that's up against the kind of the modern industrialized model of that, where it's how can we get as many bed knob polishers polishing bed knobs as possible? But then, of course, overlaying that with the modern, I guess, just the modern education requirements for frameworks models. Yeah, because how do you theorize that? How do you then do that as a sort of um academic element as well what's you know the history of bed knobs and the do you need it though well i don't know i think sometimes that's a huge argument around when they started to um kind of intellectual is intellectualized but at least have say to nurses and policemen and things like that you know you're doing this course now but actually it has to be degree level by the time you finish it has to be level i get my levels mixed up level three course or something and so, therefore, you end up bringing in a lot of academic elements to it, which, and that's the argument as well. Do you need to understand, do you need it to be at that, at a level three module in order to do the job of policing or nursing or, or any of these other things that HE have taken on with their big A apprenticeships? But, you know, they want people in those jobs who've got the equivalent of a degree. Uh, universities need the, want the money. So it's kind of uh, strange, but strange bedfellows, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, with the bed knobs at the end of the bed. Um, well, nurses have had degrees for years, haven't they? So 
Yeah, but, but this I'm I am quite old now. <laughs> I've been talking about when that first happened, which is thirty years ago or something. Yeah, I don't know. I just I I feel like if somebody was going to like, like let's say for example I I got into a fight in um as as I am prone to outside of Weatherspoons on a Friday night mm. um I would rather have somebody come along who's got the street smarts to kind of disentangle me and put than somebody who's good at referencing. My understanding of the just thinking about the kind of medical based apprenticeships is that you need that you need those kind of research skills and the ability to keep up with research as a, a medic. Um, and that is why you need to have a degree. You might be crap at referencing, but you need to be good at finding the latest research into how to hold somebody on the ground outside with a spoon um, to make sure you're doing it in the most um, evidence-based way. Um, and that would be why you might need a degree. Okay. Well, the reason one of the things we were looking at at the OU and also previously at other universities was the idea of doing PGCEs, the, so the, the teach training that yeah. teachers do at the university, doing those as apprenticeships, because the whole thing was, oh, look at this, you can get loads of money from the government if you run an apprenticeship. Yeah. We're running postgraduate certificates anyway, PG caps, PGCEs, PGC, LTHEs, or whatever. Why not? Um, actually do those and get some money you know they, we, we worked out somebody worked out however many million that would be four million i think at, yeah. at brooks if we did that um, but then we looked at how much the teachers would have to spend on the apprenticeship program to qualify and economically it just wasn't viable because they'd be having to spend a day a week and that would then be a massive amount of their salary would actually be spent on them doing the apprenticeship I discovered that some graduate training schemes, like if you want to become a solicitor and you have to go and do a um, training contract, some solicitors' firms will class that as an apprenticeship and claim the funding. <gasps> Sneaky. Hmm. Thought that was quite interesting. Obviously, solicitor salaries are a bit different from uh, trainee teachers. Yeah. Part two The answer. So we've talked about uh, all creatures great and small and apprenticeships. Uh, let's bring those two things back together again in the second part of our show where we answer our bloody stupid question. How can creatures great and small boost employability through apprenticeships? We probably didn't talk about employability enough there. Never mind. We'll answer it here. So how can creatures great and small boost employability through apprenticeships? Olivia. This idea came to me while I was watching the show. The premise of the show is that there are, there are three vets one of whom is James Herriot, and the other two are two brothers, one of whom is paying for the other one, the younger one, to go to vet school. But the younger one keeps failing his exams and um, wasting the older one's money. So he finally says, well, I'm fed up with this. I'm going to teach you myself. You can come along and work, work beside me, and I will get you through your exams. And they obviously have various kind of madcap adventures along the way for doing that. But he does indeed pass his exams and it becomes a qualified vet. And I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I was working on apprenticeships at the time and thinking this is, in fact, the apprenticeship model very clearly demonstrated through Lovely Gentle TV. And if you learn on the job, then you're likely to be more successful in your, in your um, ability to get a job. I concur. Did that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Good. It was, it was so concise. I was like... We don't normally have we don't normally have short answers. Like, what? 
Well, can I just chip in something there? Then ah, here we go. Let's just treble that. Only if I might double it. Um, <laughs> the bit that Olivia was talking about, which is the job bit, doing it, and then there's the actual mentor bit. So it's doing the job, and then having somebody to talk you through it and show you things, and then there's the reflection bit. So I suppose that's the model. I think that's part of where people go wrong a bit with learning on the job is they put people on the job and then they leave them to it. And you actually need not only, you might develop the reflection skills yourself, although that's tricky, it's better to be guided about how to do reflection. But even those two things on their own aren't enough. And what we really need is somebody who can guide you and mentor you and you can bounce ideas off and those sorts of things. So so I guess it's those three elements. I think that's very true. And it's interesting what you say about people trying to learn on the job and often not succeeding. I can think of a number of jobs I've done where I've been just kind of told to get on with it. Um, and you always learn on the job. But as you say, if you don't have anyone to talk to or bounce ideas off or and you don't have, um, if you don't know what you're doing, then you've got nothing to reflect on, then um, probably won't be very successful. Yeah. I think that's where, like initially uh, with learning design, when I started in the OU, it was quite is still open and forming itself, like the job wasn't defined. So it could just turn into sort of go along and try and help people as much as you can, but in a kind of fairly unstructured way and dive in and should I do this or shouldn't I? And because it was so uncertain, it was fairly horrible actually, because you didn't know what, you didn't know what, when you were doing what. So Matt, um, my manager was very good, like my team leader, um, at coaching and sort of giving an approach to the work. So I'm guessing the theory side of it would be, that would speak to the theory side of apprenticeships. It's like, here's why you're doing this the way it is. Here's the framework to approach your job. Here's how to think of yourself. And then put it into practice. Okay, see what happens. How did that go? Reflect. Let's try it again. So yes, we could all do the job, but it's the manner in which you did the job and which jobs you picked to do within that role. And what you again help with and what you were going to ping off to someone else. That couldn't be taught necessarily through a piece of coursework. But yeah, there's sort of frame there's like uh, frameworks for doing the role that I found helpful, like you know, deep work and focus, you know, focus on a few things at a time and let the details take care of themselves. That sort of thing. Just draw it back, it's kind of to the um, the all creatures great and small analogy. It would be like James Herriot being literally just said ah there's poorly animals on this farm going to the farm and just sort of going around and going i guess this chicken's got slightly wonky feathers do i straight i suppose i'll straight i'll iron the chicken's feathers that will make them straight i suppose and this which is kind of you know it's the same thing of okay i've been put in an environment to do a job but i'm not quite sure what the job is i've got the kind of the vague top level idea of what my job is which is to make animals not poorly but then when you've got the experienced mentor in there who can go ah well that horse over there that's limping he's got poorly hoof it's the apprenticeship model, that mentor-mentee bit, is what enables the successful um, engagement with the employment and the subsequent boost to employability. And actually, that was something else I was going to say, that it's not just about kind of doing the tasks. It's it's doing all of the learning, all of the tasks surrounding the task. So yes, you, once you've, you've, you've healed the poorly horse's hoof, you then have to bill the client and make sure that they pay and um, keep a good relationship with the client so that they come back to you. And it's it's learning the whole, yes, all of the associated, I can't think what the word is, I have to use task again. Paraphernalia. 
Yes, that that go alongside just the the basic elements of the the job. That's what employability is, and it? it's about actually being able to be hired by someone. Yeah, and that's what it was like back then, I guess. But I think Chris and it put some put his finger on something really interesting was that he and I were the first group of learning designers hired to do learning design. It was a almost a brand new unit, I think, when we started and there wasn't a model for how to work. Um, there wasn't really something put together. I think we ended up developing that what was called the core offer, which was here's a series of workshops, do this, do this, and people start explaining all that. Um, and that's that's often like a lot of jobs is that you you can't learn everything you need to know and become uh, and therefore become employable by learning everything your mentors learnt because employability now is also how do you learn on the job yourself because there's nobody to show you these things because it's a new thing so you might learn all about you know sticking your hand up cow's bottoms and screw and scooping out all the gunk from the hooves and how to build people but then if how you build people changes because you're supposed to use an excel spreadsheet rather than just write it all down in a ledger somewhere you're completely lost because now you've lost you 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 don't you you don't have a mentor to take you through all those things how do you go about learning all those changes and i think that's one of the things that those sorts of programs why they're so comforting is because they're setting it in a time where you could just muddle on through you could just learn everything you needed to learn by the time you were 22 or 23 or whatever <laughs> and then just do that for the rest of your life and never have to actually get stressed about what's my role now? What do I do differently? You know, oh, the, they don't need vets anymore. What am I going to do instead? Well, of course, around here, you had the end of the coal industry. So it was like, well, shit, now I've got to relearn and do something else. But for a lot of the, but for a lot of the professions, that's, you just carried on doing what you, your parents or your mentor did. And that's what life was like for hundreds of thousands of years you know if you're on the savannah as a homo habilis or something you haven't got to rethink how you do your life (laughs) once you hit the mid 50s or something because one you'd be dead because life was a lot shorter but secondly um you know it's not like the suddenly the rules of scavenging on the on the savannah are going to change halfway through your career (laughs) so i think that's what's why i think what a lot of stress is like these days is due to that and that's why seeing a time where that wasn't a problem and i'm not sure when it probably was just after the 50s where where jobs did change that rapidly start changing that rapidly um that um they're so comforting because we can see a time when we didn't have one aspect of our lives which is entirely stressful i'm i'm, I'm in two minds about employability as being a good thing particularly when it's marketed as employability i came across a definition of it a while back and it was so Numinous, is that the word I'm looking for? It was very kind of vague and didn't it sort of mentioned things that didn't sound like they were anything to do with employability to me. It was like one of those definitions that have been um, written by a committee over a very long time. Um, and I thought, well, if that's what we're aiming for, then I don't think that's what people, most people think of as employability. I guess my thing with it as well is like the phrase, well, the word employability, it's kind of this like, hey, make sure you're a good little serf who can work for a, work for a rich man in a mill or a digital idea mill or something and generate a good bit of wealth for somebody better than you. Um, and yeah, I, I, but I, my, my feeling with the clash with apprenticeship thing is that like, you know, your classic apprenticeship was, you know, it was you and the craftsman and the craftsman more often than not would be, you know, self-employed, you know, a tradie. I suppose they're your competitor in a way, aren't they? 
well, working for your your um we're employed in a totally different kind of context yeah i just yeah I, I, it's always kind of rubbed in an interesting way for me and i just i guess having up against apprenticeships at the same time makes me think like because on the one hand apprenticeship you're independent you're self-employed you know you are master of your own destiny and the whole kind of the employability thing for me has always been what are employers after how do i better advertise and make myself look appealing to bob microsoft so that he can share a measure of his wealth with me in exchange for naught more but my sanity and youth and my hair <laughs> and my hair <laughs> yes that is where it all went actually yeah um Sorry, sorry, I've gone off. I've gone off. On a, we've we've gone down again. We've gone down. Um, I think there's something about all creatures great and small, where it's about a lot of the plot lines are there's a mystery thing with this animal, and we don't know what it is. But, you know, there might be some hidden knowledge of that they discover eventually. But a lot of it is about problem solving, and it's reflecting, and it's about going away and being hit by inspiration a bit later. But it's about trying lots of different options and then not working. And then, hmm, this cow is suffering from a mystery ailment. What could it be? And then it becomes like a test of that character as to whether they're worthy or not. How are they going to persist? So Tristan, is that right there? The slightly goofy one who doesn't seemingly care so much. So uh, that seems to be a thread. There. He, he'll sort of like be a bit naff and useless and stumble about a bit. And then his brother will be disapproving. But then there's a whole... He does actually go and figure it out in the end. And it's sort of, okay, so what you can be teaching people is a method of solving problems. Mm. So apprenticeship for postgrad students I've been working on for a little while, well, a year or two now. Um, and it's sort of using problem-based learning throughout. So the whole idea is, you know, you want to do this in an engineering context, so go and apply it. But then we're not going to give you everything that you need to solve it. This is where your episode on problem-based learning came so helpful. <laughs> well done, Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> it's brilliant. I just listened to it several times. I was like, oh, all right, again. <laughs> <laughs> this is brilliant. But that's, that's a big thread, though, isn't it? It's sort of, it's all about problem-solving, and it's all about how to get along with people in order to solve those problems. Yes, so, and it's actually not just about following a process, is it? It's about thinking beyond the process as to what is the what is the solution and it's like, this works for one thing, but what if it works for another thing? Let's just try it and see yeah. what Is this the strength of the modern apprenticeship model in that it's giving you, I'm not going to say expanding one's metacognitive toolkit. I knew you I know that Mark has a bell sound effect somewhere he can press for that. <laughs> I got, let me see. As opposed to, you know, the old mentor-mentee exclusively focusing on becoming the best bed knob polisher giving people the equipment they need to solve their own problems does actually improve their options and, and chances in life outside of the immediate, very no, far, narrow focused field of bed knob polishing. So that does boost employability. So yeah, I'm, employability, I'm turned it? around. I'm turned around. You've, oh, piss, I've kicked the bin over. <laughs> so excited, I booted the bin. Sorry. But I think that's the local, that's the HE level. That's what it provides, isn't it? Is that metacognitive stuff. Okay, so I think we've uh, we've answered the question. Uh, let's move on to the final part of the show where we pull out any resultant practical tips for your own teaching. Part three, practical tips. Okay, so practical tips that people can uh, bring into their own practice. Chris? 
I think the biggest thing was having a plan, um, particularly for apprenticeships, because it's sometimes quite fast. And the more you can plan and have a storyboard, the better. Because as much as anything to protect students' time, because they only have one day, and the temptation is to throw as much knowledge and information as possible at them, which they can't possibly digest in time and, and apply. So it's just being very design-focused, succinct, weeding out as much extraneous material as possible so that here's the point you want them to get. What activity are you going to get them to do? What are they going to get for reflecting on it? How long have they got? And then just what is the information they need to do that and no more. And that would be, that was the message that I was giving, you know, a fair few times. Mark? Um, I suppose my first tip would be if somebody gives you the opportunity, uh, asks you to fill in for one of their workshops because they're off for the week, take that opportunity because you're going to learn a lot from where they've left, where they've taken it to and where they take it on from. Because everything I know about apprenticeships, I did for by doing by filling in for Chris for a week. Um, so that's one tip. Thank the you other so one much. would be <laughs> the other one would be think of those three elements as the concrete stuff, which is the day to day things, which these days is going to just not last you that long. Um, focus more on the reflective skills and the metacognitive skills to develop your own concrete skills, I suppose, um, and also focus on that mentor aspect. Because I think the mentor aspect is the thing that makes apprenticeships a cut above other forms of um, learning. Olivia? Building on that, the point about mentors is that they themselves need to know how to be mentors and how to, to mentor their protégés. Is that the right word? Their mentees? So you kind of can't leave them out of the whole the picture that they need, the, they need support as well to enable the, the apprentices to... Uh, where they want to be who teaches the well it's not who teaches the teachers who teaches the lecturers there is something about wisdom not knowledge isn't there so like if like mentoring or like in other contexts discipling or you know padawan jedi master is there's knowledge but there's the wisdom to apply in the right way at the right time and that's really hard to teach without a mentor so i suppose you've got to pick your mentor as well yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it. It comes down to the look with which, you know, do you get the right mentor or not? You know, you might get Qui-Gon Jinn and end up like Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or you might be get Obi-Wan Kenobi and end up like Darth Vader. You know, a lot of that was on his head, wasn't it, for being not a great mentor, I suppose? Yeah, it's very kung fu movie. <laughs> no, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a very kung fu movie, like wisdom, not knowledge. It's like, oh, very kung fu movie. Yeah. Then, you know... The good apprentice seeks the master. Yeah, that needs to be the tagline somewhere. <laughs> my tip, my top tip, is if you want to impress people at a pedagogic dinner party, then given the origin, the etymology of the word pedagogue, that's, that's still my highlight for the day, I think. That was wonderful. Oh. I never knew that before. Really, really pleased that I now know that. <laughs> I'm going to bore a lot of people about that, yeah. everybody, <laughs> multiple times. I've forgotten how I close the show. Do you want me to wrap it up? Would you, Mark? If no, that's fine. Okay, so uh, I think we've uh, covered all the points of that question. I think we've uh, really given apprenticeship a good um, kicking there. And I think it's probably time to round it all up. So um, thank you to Mike for hosting the vast majority of this show <laughs> in the last few minutes, leaving it to me. And Chris and Olivia for really giving us a really good insight into apprenticeship and how they've worked through it. And 
all creatures great and small, which I suppose I should now go and look at. If you want to hear more pedagogically, pardon pedagogically, <laughs> Jesus, this is harder than it looks. Um, if you You're doing brilliantly, Godzilla, then uh, subscribe to us on all your favourite podcast. Uh, podcast podcasting thing uh, or look at the website <laughs> it's a really long rambling story about how to get the earl tattooed on your head or something but I'd, I'll leave that for Mike next time um, we could go around the list of how you get in touch with us more on Twitters I'm at Mark Childs I'm at Pedagodzilla I'm at Olivia K.A. Rowland so far I'm on the Twitters but you can't say so I'm on LinkedIn so, um, okay, so thank you very much for listening and we'll uh, love you loads and we'll hopefully hear you for the next episode. Um, and uh, that's it. Goodbye. How was that? <laughs>